Bibles uh, to the book of Colossians chapter 3. So we're at the midway point in our study of the book, and here we are in a series, study on Sunday mornings of Colossians, a series entitled, uh, Give Me Jesus. It is the most Christ-centric epistle in the entire New Testament, and that's the reason for uh, that title. And we pick things up in chapter 3, verse 1, very, very famous, well-known passage. And Paul writes and says, if, you, uh, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him uh, in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we are always have a, a, a sense and a, a consciousness of privilege as we turn uh, to your word. We think about what the world would be like, what our hearts would be like if your book did not exist in human history. And how thankful we are to be able to live our lives under its influence, under its instruction, in all of its beauty, the perspective that it gives to us, Lord. We don't know how people uh, manage life without knowing you and without being able to process it in the light of your Holy Spirit and your word. But we do and we're thankful uh, for that. And we pray that whether our trials uh, today and, and our uh, challenges, or our need for wisdom are immediate and in our own personal life or whether in our family or whether in the world, whatever it is that might be happening, that you would speak to us through your word today, speak uh, perspective, speak power in, into our lives. And we pray that now you would give us an ability by your spirit to give you our full attention from all distraction as we desire to have you take your word and write it upon the fleshly tablets of our heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If, if I could get a little more light up here, that would be great for me. I don't know if it's an option, but it, it would be a little darker than usual. As we've seen in recent weeks, the Apostle Paul, uh, his letter to the church at Colossae was written in order to expose and to correct false teaching that was going on uh, in the church that uh, while in a kind of a germ form at the time of his writing of it would ultimately uh, in the second century of church history uh, formalize and become known as the heresy of Gnosticism. And it is the idea that Christianity can somehow be improved upon in any way. Uh, but very specifically, the Gnostics were bringing forth the idea that it could be improved on the basis of legalism, on the basis of human philosophy, or a pseudo-mysticism, or on the basis of asceticism, or the accommodating of the flesh, the abandonment to the appetites of the flesh, rather than resisting them. And I think it is very important, as I've mentioned before, to realize as Christians that none of these issues are peripheral issues. 
They're not small issues. Every one of them is an affront to the gospel. And every one of them represents a heresy and represents a danger to the gospel. Uh, God's offer of salvation, God's plan of salvation to mankind, uh, and, the, and the salvation in the gospel uh, that Jesus was born into the world to provide. And then on in his uh, 33 and a half years of, of public ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, ascension, all that he went through in order to provide us with uh, good news it is just the height of arrogance to think that I can improve upon that in any way. And all of these uh, so-called improvements are an affront and they are an attack actually upon Christianity. And that's why Paul corrects them. And this morning we come to Paul's instruction concerning the fifth of these uh, things, the accommodating of the flesh, the accommodating uh, of uh, the uh, sin nature or carnality or sin itself in the life of a Christian as opposed to uh, resisting it. And if, as we mentioned last time, the air of asceticism is a a, uh, an air that really has no uh, great prominence within our American culture uh, and additionally no great prominence in Christian culture uh, here. Uh, now in coming to this one, we come to one that is very, very heavily represented. The increasing failure uh, to take repentance from sin seriously, uh, the increasing uh, moving away from a quest from uh, spiritual victory related to the Christian life in terms of sin and uh, the commitment to live a very, very different life in the world as a Christian. And this, again, emphasis upon a victorious Christian life, uh, the determination and the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life like uh, Christ. I think in order to understand what Paul is addressing, not only in the first four verses of chapter three here, but also in the entirety of the chapter, all the way through uh, verse 17, it is important to, uh, in, in looking at the doctrine that he's looking to correct here, it's important to understand the Gnostic's view of the material world and the Gnostic's view in particular uh, of the human body. They taught that the material world was evil and as a result that the physical body of man, speaking generically, true of both men and women, uh, that our physical bodies are evil as well, but that the spirit of man, that is the, um, the spiritual part, the emotional part, the intellectual part of man uh, was good. And this particular belief of the Gnostics, it produced two very, very different camps within uh, Gnosticism. And the first camp was uh, the Gnostics uh, uh, gathered under asceticism. They gathered under the banner of legalism. In other words, if the spirit is good and the body is evil, then we must deny all body uh, appetites. And... Um, resulting in a life of asceticism, a life of extreme self-denial, uh, legalism, even self-torture, self-flagellation uh, in order to keep the body appetites down. 
But there was a second group within the Gnostics who decided that they would uh, view that Gnostic teaching and the implications of it in a completely different way. And they determined that if man is hopelessly dual, if he is both body and he is spirit, and, uh, and he is made up of the body which is evil and the spirit which is good, and that they are two entirely separate things within a human being, that this can never be changed, that what, uh, and they determined that then that what the one part of the body uh, does or, or what one does with the body can't affect the spirit, what one does with the spirit can't affect the body. The body is irredeemable in terms of the fact that is it is ultimately an, uh, 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 evil, then they decided uh, that all that really mattered was that you that if you believe the right thing, uh, and so they decided all disregard the body, disregard its appetites in terms of trying to keep them under control. Uh, if the only thing that is good about man is his spirit, his intellect, his emotion, and they focused mainly on the intellect, then a person be, can become a very spiritual person by believing all the right things, but believing all the right things did not need to translate into uh, their everyday life. And so this was the ultimate kind of uh, compartmentalizing of uh, my life. And there were, uh, uh, and, and so they would believe all of the right things and then give themselves to complete license. They would give themselves a debauchery. There was uh, zero concern with involving themselves in any kind uh, of sin. After all, what you did with the body had no bearing upon your spirituality uh, at all. And, of course, this kind of categorization, many, many uh, Christians uh, who do exactly the same thing. And all that matters uh, in their minds is that we believe the right things in our minds. Uh, but how I choose to live my life practically is uh, our own business entirely. And there's really this extreme Gnostic-like uh, uh, disconnect between uh, what I believe and the life that I actually live and the idea that I can be a spiritual person and then live precisely how I choose, uh, including a life of unbridled, unchecked uh, sin. And of course, this, uh, their Christianity then becomes a purely intellectual thing. And so they will attend church on Sundays and they'll worship God in song in a church service, but then the rest of the week they will deliberately live uh, a life that is in complete violation of the teaching of that God and the teaching of scriptures, and they won't even blink at it. They won't even blink at the disconnect because they will tell themselves that God knows that I am uh, deeply spiritual inside and that my life of sin uh, really doesn't matter to him or my life of sin is no reflection upon um, my spirituality. And so uh, th that, of course, is not Christianity. It is Gnosticism. One of the interesting things that's happening today, and uh, you're probably running into it as you talk with relatives and friends or you share the gospel with people, is one of the big buzzwords is the word spiritual. 
So if you talk with people about Christ, you talk about your own relationship with the Lord, and uh, people will uh, be very prone now to say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. Uh, or I am not religious, but I am spiritual. And uh, they know that there's something more to life than it can be experienced in the physical realm. They know that there is something transcendent uh, about life, but practically uh, they do not want their participation uh, in sin or their uh, participation in their own selfishness to be hindered uh, in any way. And almost always when you probe for the specifics of their spirituality, you'll discover that it looks exactly like them. They have developed a spiritual system, which is what any human being would do, uh, that is completely formulated upon their own views in life, their own ideas about what God ought to be like, uh, and, uh, and, and what kind of commandments he should or shouldn't give us. And it essentially becomes the worship of self, but I, I protect myself from any accusation of, of being purely secular or being purely uh, carnal. And this kind of thing uh, fairly dominates the religious landscape in, uh, of the United States today. Now, in the light of this, it's very important for us to realize as Christians that God's will for our lives is not only that we believe the right things, but His will for our lives is that we would also, our lives would also be sanctified. Uh, he is interested in our sanctification, that our lives would be separated uh, away from the world and separated unto Him. Uh, Paul uh, uh, declared in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, and 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, ch chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so, uh, what is sanctification? As I said, it's the separation of our life from the definitions of the world, the ways of the world, uh, toward uh, God. And, and Paul gives us the perfect definition of it in verse 10, as we'll see uh, next time, and that is that our lives will be progressively conformed into the image of God, into the image of Jesus Christ. The idea that, and it's important for us to realize this, the idea that as Christians, we're not called to live, as the Gnostics were saying, a life of carnality, uh, living a life of obedience to uh, the sinful pull of the flesh in our lives, but rather to become more and more like Jesus Christ, both outwardly and inwardly, and uh, in our actions, in our speaking, in our thinking, in our decision-making in life, in our motives, and in our attitudes. And the Bible teaches that this work of the Holy Spirit, sanctification in our lives, is to characterize our lives from the moment of our spiritual birth all the way to the very end of our life until we enter into glory individually or we do so by way uh, of the rapture uh, of the church. This work of uh, sanctification 
by the Holy Spirit of conforming us into the image of Christ, no Christian is ever to feel that we have the luxury of allowing the Holy Spirit to take us only so far, and then we determine that's as far as we want to go. And then we stop at that place in our progression. Our sanctification is to go on uh, all the way through our lives. If Jesus is the standard uh, for holiness in terms of a definition, uh, and he is, then there will always be room for growth in this area of sanctification in our lives as Christians all the way to uh, the very end. Now, you might remember from, remember from last time that chapter 2 closes with Paul's statement concerning uh, the greatest of asceticism's uh, failure uh, in, 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 as a religious philosophy as the Gnostics were uh, advancing. And that is, he declared of it, that it is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, Paul said that asceticism won't make a single dent in changing our flesh at all. It won't make a single dent in changing the uh, sin nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. It won't set a single individual person free from the strong pull of the fallen nature that we're all born with into sin and into selfishness and into darkness. And the reason that asceticism is powerless to do that is for the simple reason, as we mentioned, is that you cannot defeat the flesh by the flesh. Uh, the flesh will never cooperate in its own uh, death. And the same thing is true, uh, Paul says by intimation, what is true concerning asceticism is also true of human philosophy and true of legalism and true of uh, pseudo-spiritualism. Uh, None of them are of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. And so that then raises in Paul's mind the single great intent, uh, 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 question that he proceeds to answer. And all of what he says there in terms of this having no value against the indulgence of the flesh, uh, as he says that, he's intending that within our minds as Christians would immediately come the question, well then what is of value against the indulgence of the flesh? And that's the question that he answers in chapter 3 of the book uh, of, of Colossians. And uh, what is it that will, uh, if these things won't bring us into a holy life, a Christ-like life, a life that uh, pleases God, if it won't set us free from the flesh, if it won't lead us into an abundant life, a peace-filled life, uh, there's no uh, value against the sinful nature, then what is of value? And uh, again, as I said, uh, really through verses 1 through 17, uh, he addresses, those, uh, addresses that question. And we'll simply look at the first four verses here this morning. Uh, you notice in these four verses, as we read through them, Paul's repetition of uh, Jesus' title, Christ. 
He says, with Christ in verse 1. He speaks of where Christ in verse 1. He speaks of with Christ again in verse 3. In verse 4, he declares, uh, when Christ. You just simply cannot shoehorn uh, more of Jesus into those four verses than he does. And the Apostle Paul had quite a vocabulary. He knows how to write. It would have been very easy for him to use Jesus' title uh, as the Christ uh, one time and then simply referred to him as he or him in the remaining verses. But he doesn't. He repeats the term Christ over and over again, and he does so uh, for emphasis. And, uh, and the point that he's making uh, is to drive home the point that everything that we need both concerning salvation and sanctification are found only in him and they cannot be found anywhere else in life second uh, peter chapter 1 verse 3 peter declared concerning this uh, as his speaking of the lord as his divine power has given to us all that pertain to life and godliness in other words, if Jesus can save us, which is the far greater miracle, it is the far greater thing, then he is certainly capable of sanctifying uh, our lives. And so Jesus, Paul is saying, isn't in the business of saving us. And then he's so powerless in the face of the pull of sin within our lives that he cries out uncle uh, to it. And he now turns us over to man's philosophy and legalism and asceticism uh, to produce sanctification within us. And so it is the one who has saved us, Jesus, he has every intention of also sanctifying us. And Paul is saying he doesn't need any help in this regard in accomplishing that. The second thing that we want to notice in verse 1 is that Paul declares that we are to realize that we are, uh, we as Christians were raised with Christ. That is, he's already brought this out in chapter 2, verse 12, as we studied that. But the idea is that when we were born again, the Holy Spirit came into our lives and provided us with power. And he had provided us with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And the Holy Spirit brought his supernatural power in our lives and in order to give us the ability to live a supernatural resurrection uh, life in the face of the pull of sin and the power of sin in our lives. In other words, in saving us, Jesus doesn't merely forgive us of our sins and then leave us doomed to continue to live a sin-dominated life for the remainder of this uh, life. But he saved us and he gave us the power to live a life of victory over sin, to live a life like his. In other words, again, while we will always have an old sin nature, uh, that we have to deal with until we go to heaven. And we go to heaven, that nature, sin nature will be done with when we receive uh, a body that has been prepared for us. 
uh, for heaven. But so that sin nature is there, the pull is there, but its power over us, as Paul brings out in Romans chapter 6, has been rendered inoperative. In other words, we do not have to obey our old sin uh, nature. We're not immune to temptation. We're not immune to sin uh, as Christians. Uh, The old sin nature hasn't been annihilated and and now completely gone. We're going to be tempted by sin between this point and the day that we enter into heaven. But because of our faith in Jesus Christ, a greater power has been introduced into our lives, and we now have an upward pull towards holiness that is present in our lives that is far greater than the downward pull of uh, sin. And it's kind of like, I like the illustration of being in a jet airplane. And the gravity is still pulling that plane down as it's attempting to lift off of uh, the ground. But it is the greater power of the jet engines that allows that plane to defy the laws uh, of gravity, the pull of gravity, and then lift that plane up into the heavenlies. And, And so it is with the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Sin still wants to pull us down into bondage, but the Holy Spirit has provided us with the power uh, to live a holy life that's even greater than the pull of sin uh, that that it once had and that it can continue to have in our lives to pull us into bondage. And Paul is saying that the beginning point, the starting point in terms of a life of holiness is to believe that. Uh, Paul, again in Romans, he, he, he uses the word reckon, to accept that as a fact. If I do not believe the Bible, if I do not believe the truth that this spiritual birth has not only saved me, but that this power has been introduced into my life, then I will never step out in the exercise of that power and experience it, and I will then continue to live a completely uh, frustrated, uh, defeated Christian life. And so change begins in our thinking. No one ever rises above what they believe to be true. And if our thinking concerning our own individual Christian lives is, I know the Bible says that about the Holy Spirit. I, I know that God says this about the Holy Spirit, but I don't really believe that about me, about myself. You will never change as long as you stay uh, in that place. I would never change if I stay in that place. Change begins by recognizing this is true. This miracle has happened uh, within my life and uh, knowing that it, it is the truth, it begins with believing the right things and then basing our actions upon them. I want you to notice third, In verse 1, Paul tells us to seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, here he tells us that the focus and the desires of our hearts 
and our lives should be very different from what they once were before we became a Christian. And so once our hearts were focused on self, our hearts, our emotions, our attractions uh, were uh, focused upon temporal things, on uh, worldly-based things and thinking and teaching and philosophies and religions. And Paul says that now our hearts... Uh, what captures our hearts, our, the emotional side of our life, our hearts are to be dominated by the pattern of heaven and uh, oriented toward heaven, focused on eternal things, the things that are going to outlive this life. All of the truth and all of the realities that have their origin in heaven and have their origin in God. Uh, Our hearts, our affections are to be placed upon uh, those things. And Paul is saying that all of these other things, the human philosophy that the Gnostics were selling, all of the legalism, all of the pseudo-spirituality, all of the asceticism, uh, to say nothing of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, kind of uh, secular philosophy of the world that we live in, uh, all of those things that can be advanced within our culture All they merely do is take our eyes off of heaven. They take our eyes off of God and the things above. And they remove our affections from being placed upon heaven and transfer our affections to uh, the dismalness and the messiness and the fallenness and the hopelessness uh, of this world. And when he tells us to seek those things that are above, the word seek there... Uh, carries the idea of seeking something uh, that is uh, very dear to you and that is lost in you desperately want to find. And so it's got that kind of an intensity uh, to it. It's also in the present tense, in other words, uh, and the idea is that we're to keep seeking uh, these things that are uh, above. We're never to cease doing that as a Christian. Nothing else in life, in the course of our uh, life in this world, is to ever capture our hearts or move our hearts away uh, from a longing for heaven itself. And he tells us why all of this is to be true, because Christ is there in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. And so there is the, that is the place where Jesus is exalted. Heaven is the place that Jesus is glorified. He is at the center of it. And it is the place that he will one day take us home into. And that the recognition and the reminder in all of this is that heaven is our home. This is not our home. And that is always a good uh, reminder to think about the world that we live in right now is an extraordinary mess. Our nation is in an extraordinary uh, mess in large part because of a failure of leaders to lead and, and uh, solve problems that they've been elected to solve. And 
and many other things, coronavirus going on, and, and all of these things that are, are happening in, in the world that we find ourselves in. And, uh, and to stop for a moment and just to think, how much of my, the emotional me, which I'm to love God with all of my heart, that's the emotional side of me, all my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, how much of my heart, my, uh, the emotional side of me is dominated by this world as opposed to being dominated by uh, heaven and the realities that are found there, the reality that we are one day going uh, to, to be there, that that is a kingdom and a place where nothing changes, nothing shakes, uh, where God reigns and reigns related to our own uh, lives. And so... Uh, concerning heaven, we are to have an emotional, we are to have a heartfelt longing for heaven uh, and a desire to be dominated by uh, heaven. Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He said, for our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And the condition of the world as a whole, the condition of our bodies, the older that we get, the physical condition, uh, all of the difficulties that we face in life, all of the trials, all of the suffering, uh, all of the persecution uh, that we face as pilgrims in this world, all of them are intended to produce a longing for heaven and a longing for the Jesus who is there. And in the Spirit's power and His work, uh, He accomplishes that. Uh, and and uh, this world feels a little bit stranger uh, day by day, and our longing to one day be in heaven is, it becomes greater and greater. And it is one of the... Uh, the ways that God works even bad things together for our good as Christians. We're learning things in the middle of the mess that we're in the middle of today that we don't even know that we're learning. And uh, God works in our lives knowing that uh, He is at once giving us grace for the day in which we're living, but He knows the days that are ahead. He knows what kind of character we're going to need uh, to navigate those coming days. And so He's at work in our lives, and one of those great works is to set our hearts uh, firmly and completely upon heaven. Notice fourth there in verse two, Paul tells us that we're to set our minds, uh, now speaking specifically of the mind. Set your mind on things above, not on things uh, on the earth. And here we're told that heaven is not only to dominate our emotions, not only to dominate our affections, but it is to, in our hearts, but to dominate our minds, it is to dominate our thinking. And so thoughts about heaven, 
uh, thoughts dominated by heaven, our thinking, our judgments, our priorities, our decision-making, dominated by heaven, dominated by heaven's holiness, dominated by heaven's values, uh, dominated uh, uh, by the commands that come from the God who fills heaven, dominating our worldview, uh, and, and so forth. And I think it's good to ask ourselves if this marks, uh, to what degree this kind of thing marks our lives and marks our uh, thinking. There's an old saying, it's a famous saying, and I know why people say it, but I don't agree with it, uh, at least on a practical level. And the old saying, somebody will say about somebody else, well, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I, I want to confess that I have never met uh, such a Christian in my entire life. I think there, if, if it's possible, perhaps, that this could happen, but I think they're as rare as a, a, an albino robin. And uh, I don't run across them at all. On the contrary, uh, we are of some earthly good only as our focus and as our desires and our thinking and our decision-making and our priorities and our goals in life as those things are dominated by heaven and dominated by God's Word. Because if our minds are not dominated in that way, then we are merely like everyone else uh, in, in the world. Paul is telling us that we cannot be of any true earthly good without being heavenly minded. Again, our minds, our thinking, our decision making, being dominated by heaven, God's standard of holiness and his commandments that are honored in heaven, that are practiced there uh, in heaven as they're revealed uh, in the Bible. And it is a heaven-mindedness that will produce far more in terms of uh, Christ-likeness and holiness within our lives uh, than all of this world and its rituals and all of uh, its Gnosticism and all of its human philosophy and legalism and asceticism and uh, pseudo-mysticism as the false teachers were advocating. I want you to notice fifth that Paul tells us that we're to realize in verse 3 that you died uh, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, what is the rationale behind all of this? What lies at the foundation of this kind of a, a, a commitment to heavenly uh, thinking? and uh, heavenly living. And the fact uh, 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 that, uh, that the rationale behind it is that when we came to Christ, we died. That we died to sin, that we died to self, that we uh, gave our lives to the Lord at that moment, not merely to be saved, not merely to know Him uh, solely as Savior, but to know Him uh, as Lord. And we, surrender our we surrendered our lives to Him now to use for His purposes for the remainder 
uh, of, of our lives. Our lives belong to him, Paul is saying, and they belong to him lock, stock, and barrel. In other words, uh, the, he is never intended, Christianity was never intended that he would merely be a savior in a person's life and uh, not also uh, be their Lord. I remember years ago there was a big argument that went on in Christianity and uh, whether a person could be saved by merely knowing Jesus as Savior, but not uh, making him Lord. And this went on, and, the, and everybody kind of went back and forth uh, related to it. And uh, just the fact that the que- that question would rise within our culture speaks to the fact of how many people are operating under kind of a Gnostic Christian, Christianity, trying to find some way uh, to, for it to be adequate that I simply believe the right things, but not that I would obey uh, uh, those things, that I could know Christ as Savior, but not know Him uh, as Lord. But Jesus declared to us as his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul in Galatians 2.20 said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, my life is all about him and his purposes for my life. Paul wrote very powerfully in this regard in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, He said, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that's the power, that's the strength of what it is that Paul is saying here. And the importance of recognizing, allowing it to search our own Christian lives this morning. Do I see my Christian life in that way? My life belongs to Him. And, and it is His to do with uh, as He uh, sees fit. And when Paul speaks there in verse Three about the fact that our life is hidden uh, with Christ in God. It's the idea that this union that we have with Christ, that it is a heavenly union. And because it is a heavenly union, a spiritual union, it, it's hidden from man's observation. And so you remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, 
about uh, being born again, and he spoke about it as a spiritual birth, and he spoke about the fact that a spiritual birth was like uh, the wind blowing through the trees by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can't see the Holy Spirit in the same way you can't see the wind, uh, but you know the wind exists by the effect that a breeze has as it blows through the tree. And we know the Holy Spirit is real though we can't see him because of the effect that he has upon our lives once he enters into uh, our lives. And what Paul is saying here is even as that great spiritual reality has occurred, uh, is unobservable by man, it is still occurred. And this great union that we have, this, uh, this relationship that we have with Christ in God, nobody else in the world can see it. And certainly nobody other than a Christian can understand it uh, at all. Our link to him uh, spiritually, uh, on, they can only see the effect that it is having upon our lives, but they should see the effect. And then finally here, uh, sixth, Paul tells us in verse four that we're to realize that when Christ who uh, uh, that when Christ who is our life appears, that uh, you also will appear with Him in glory. And here we have the reminder that as Christians, we're to always be living in anticipation of Jesus's return for the church at the rapture of the church, the return for us to take us into the glory of heaven before the great tribulation uh, period begins and that that great event could happen at any moment in time. And that consciousness of the fact that heaven is our home and that Jesus could arrive at any time and take us into that place, that consciousness and living with that consciousness, in that consciousness, it has a purifying effect within our lives as Christians, a needed purifying uh, uh, effect. And the desire of our heart is that when the rapture of the church occurs, that we will be found watching for him, waiting for him, uh, working on his behalf, rather than being found uh, engaged in carnality or dominated by the flesh or engaged in, uh, in sin. John wrote of this in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And he said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, speaking of the rapture of the church, that uh, when he is revealed, uh, we shall be like him, that is glorified, and uh, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, that is Jesus, is pure. And the false doctrine of the false teachers in Colossae uh, focusing the attention of Christians solely upon uh, the world, the things of, of, uh, of this world. And Paul reminds the church at Colossae, he reminds us that we have a far greater destiny 
than anything we will ever know or experience in this world. And that is the unspeakable, indescribable uh, glory of heaven. And knowing that uh, as a truth, as a reality for us uh, as Christians, it will always produce a holier Christian, a more Christ-like Christian than what they were selling. Again, then human philosophy, then asceticism, then legalism, then uh, pseudo-spiritualism will ever, ever produce. And so we have to stop here in Paul's thought progression and all of this. And I always hate to pause. Of course, we have to. Uh, but to pause here because uh, he moves so quickly on to uh, some very nuts and bolts, rubber meets the road kind of, uh, of things now that he's laid this particular part of his, his argument down as we'll uh, look forward to getting into uh, next week. But we'll stop here and, and looking at, at this much on this issue of how to genuinely experience a holy, godly, uh, victorious Christian uh, life, the life that we're uh, in, in, uh, intended to. But I do want us to allow what we've already seen here today uh, that, uh, to sink in and give a moment to uh, give it some consideration and application in our lives. And some of these things may warrant uh, taking a walk today or going into a prayer closet related to them. I, I know full well that when I teach a Bible study and teach it from the Word of God, that the Word of God will never return void. It will always have its impact upon people's lives. And yet, we all know that experience is we're listening to the Word of God being taught where there can be those one or two things that kind of have that extra special life in terms of the Holy Spirit applying it to our lives. And those are the things that we want to give attention to always, but give attention to uh, uh, this morning, personally and individually, and just to ask ourselves, have I compartmentalized my Christian life to the point that it has now become almost entirely an intellectual affair, but my Christianity no longer has any kind of powerful or dramatic impact upon my day-to-day -day life? And if that's true, that's something that I need to repent of. Or is my understanding of being a disciple of Jesus Christ that uh, I am to continue to grow in sanctification and in Christ-likeness all of the days of my life? Has that Christian growth ceased at some point already in our Christian uh, life, whether recently or long ago? And if it is, we're living some uh, version of Christianity that doesn't exist in the Bible. And to confess that as a sin to God, and then to repent of it. To ask further of this passage, do I accept as a fact the reality of my Christian life? Uh, that I now possess a power in my life from the Holy Spirit that is infinitely more powerful than the pull of sin or the pull of this world in my life. 
And am I, am I acting upon that power of the Holy Spirit in the face of temptation and in the face of the world's attempts to conform me? And if that has stopped then, that's something that I need to, to stop and talk with the Lord about and say, this is missing from my life, Lord, and it must change. I'm living something far less than what Christ has provided for me, and I want to live in a bold faith concerning that reality of what has been introduced into my life by way of the Christian uh, birth. And then finally, are both my heart and my mind dominated by heaven, dominated by the laws of heaven, dominated by the God of heaven, dominated by the hope of heaven? And if the world has, and sin has completely captured my heart, or in any degree captured my heart and my mind, so that there is no affection for heaven, uh, there is, uh, my mind is not set upon it uh, to any degree at all, or to an inferior uh, degree, than to recognize that that is not the Christianity that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again from the dead, and is ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father in order to provide to us. And to turn from that and to say, God, would you help me now? I want my affections and my mind to be fully dominated by you and by heaven in this pilgrimage, in the raising of my children, in my marriage, in my schoolwork, in the workplace, in my decision-making, how I conduct myself uh, in, in uh, my relationships with friends, with family, with neighbors. And he will answer that prayer, and he will produce that within our lives. Let's stand together now and let's close in prayer.